I'm Jess Fisher, and this is the best paper I ever wrote. Hello, we are recording on Sunday. Nope. Hello. <laughs> Today we are recording on Tuesday, December 29th. Uh, my fantastic guest today is a lovely friend of a friend, but I like to call her my friend as well. Uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? <laughs> Hello, I am Sierra. Hi, Sierra. What's your full name? <laughs> Sierra Archambault Brown. Oh, I actually didn't know. Oh, that's so that's so pleasant. Um, how would you like Thank to self-identify? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I will say that I am by training an engineer mm. um but i feel like that sounds super sterile so uh <laughs> i i think i'm a social engineer but not in a sneaky way just in a i like to apply engineering to society kind of way what does it what do you mean by a sneaky way <laughs> so like I think a lot of, so this is my own personal experience studying engineering, but um, there are like various ways that you can exploit people in how you design things. So to me, social engineering can have a very negative connotation because it is um, typically used to describe this like exploitative study of behavior and then oh. you go in and you like manipulate people based on what you predict they're going to do. Oh my gosh. It, yeah. would that is that done in so that's done in sociology and psychology a lot? Um I honestly don't know if it is like a sociology psychology type of discipline or if it's just like a cuz I've always heard it used as a general term so no one gets a degree in it but it's like oh. <laughs> uh, an approach to doing something. Oh wow. Is like a case or, or a famous example of that? Um, I don't think there's a famous example. It's usually like social engineering to me means when you go on like particularly social media and you uh, engineer your posts a certain way, you engineer oh. your notifications to like nudge people to come back into the app, um, whether they have their own thought organically to do it or your notification like gives them the push to come into your app. It's those kinds of things where it's like people don't recognize that they're being manipulated, but they are. Okay, that is so cool. Um, you know, it's really funny. We yeah. don't usually go into like those types of things um, before I start like my initial questions. So, <laughs> okay, so that was fascinating. Oh, oops. Um, no, don't even say oops at all. I asked the question because I was like, I can't let that go. Um, now, the next question on my on my usual <laughs> list is how do we know each other? Oh, great question. So <laughs> you are a very good friend of my boyfriend who I met in college and you guys met in middle school. Yeah, yeah, I think actually, yeah. I don't, I actually don't, we were talking about this recently. I'm not sure when, when he and I met, but we, we've been very close friends for all of middle school and high school. And you and I have met two times, three times. I think actually yes, every time we met was in New York City. Yes, that is correct. There was, and there was and neither of us are there now. And neither of us are in New York City now. Yeah, that's, yep. I'm currently um, in my mom's airbnb closet in salt lake city <laughs> and and are you at home i am yes in, in jersey, jersey right yeah 
Oh, that, mm -hmm. that leads me to where did you grow up and where do you live now? Uh, good question. So I grew up primarily, I'll say like um, pre-age 16, I grew up in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, which is uh, kind of further out suburb of Philadelphia. And then uh, halfway through my sophomore year of high school, I moved to Long Valley, New Jersey, which is a tiny town that I don't even think you can call a suburb at this point because it is like quite far from New York. Um, but yeah, very similar uh, experiences, you know, like mid-Atlantic, majority white suburbs. <laughs> How, well, oh my gosh, so you moved to a new state sophomore year of high school halfway through oh yeah. my gosh that must have been so rough on you it was I can attest that it was not a fun experience <laughs> um but I think the silver lining is that a lot of the like oh my god who am I that you get in college when your environment is disrupted I got that <laughs> in high school so oh. it was it was a really interesting growing experience for sure. So you were 15 thinking, who am I, instead of 19 thinking, who am I? Right. Like the second wave did come at 19. It was just like a second wave instead of a first. And what, what, what were the things that you discovered about yourself when you, when you moved, when you were 15? That's a fun question. I think <laughs> I appreciate uh, quite... <laughs> Like, quite honestly, that I, uh, before I moved, was, like, way more um, focused on external validation. And uh. so when I moved and it was, like, nobody had an idea of who I was, like, what I was good at, um, those kinds of things. And I didn't have an established social position in the high school hierarchy. Um, I realized, like, oh, shit, <laughs> that stuff mattered way more than I thought it did to me. Mm -hmm. So then I had to shift my focus and figure out what I actually like organically found joy and mm. satisfaction and motivation in. Um, so the short answer was theater. And yeah. um, I did I did that and it made me very happy. So I guess that leads me to my next question. Where did you go to school and what did you study in school? Uh, I went to the University of Pennsylvania and I studied networked and social systems engineering. That was my major. And my minor was theater arts. Okay, cool. Um, how would you define your major? Yes, that's a hard <laughs> question to answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think even the administrators don't know how to define our major, which is apparent if you go on the website. Um, <laughs> but basically it's like, a lot of computer science, but with the purpose of creating algorithms and software to basically like take into account the fact that the internet now exists. So when you have millions of people interacting on the same platforms using the same products, how do you build something so that it can technically handle that many users? And then on the feature side, like, how do you um, incorporate the differences in behavior when you are on a Twitter and there are millions of strangers that you can connect to? Like, how do people behave? And then how can you build better features to empower those users to do more? That's so interesting because, I, I mean, I find those things fascinating already. Um, 
but it's interesting to look at it from an algorithmic perspective because like I, I'm a psych person, I minored in child psych, and so I look at all those things from a psych perspective and then to look at that in an um, algorithmic way, like it's just not something I've thought of and is very important and way above my head. Um, <laughs> it's funny, so I, I talked to my friend Amanda about this a, a few episodes ago about like the concept of being a woman in STEM and sort of the commodification of like mm -hmm. STEMinism. It's interesting that you minored in yes. theater and you majored in STEM. Like, do, do you have like an identity crisis about being a woman in STEM versus arts or both or like anything? <laughs> yeah, not anything in there. Any, um, do you have an identity crisis about anything? <laughs> <laughs> well, since you asked. Um, but no, I think like, cause I, I was listening to that episode and I thought, it was really satisfying to hear someone else like talk about it uh, in a way that I think lines up with my own experience. Like, I I love the idea of women being able to pursue whatever the fuck they want, and so mm -hmm. um, I think the extension of that is like, yes, if you want to go into STEM, do it. And I certainly felt more pressure studying it to be really good at it because I'm a woman, because I'm oh, wow. black. Yeah, and it was like one of those things where um, I can't say that this professor made me feel like an idiot because I'm a woman when I went to their office hours that one time. Like that was not my experience, but rather um, the subliminal pressure of being like, okay, there are literally four women in this room of 30 people hmm. and um the like environment you know was definitely alienating but yeah. um it was not severe for me personally um and I also think that it helped being at a smaller not a smaller university there's like 10,000 undergrads but <laughs> the engineering department is very small and then within that my major is only like 20 people every year oh um, wow really yeah mm -hmm. it's very it's a very like specialized major it's not one of the ones that's like ah uh, yes when I grow up I want to be a networked and social systems engineer you know um so I feel like the experience of studying it definitely made me feel like an outsider mm -hmm. but uh as far as the title and the identity I'm like yeah sure that fits me um but when it comes to theater it's like that's what I actually am most passionate about oh, really? so yeah so like walking into work and identifying as an engineer I'm like yeah this is a thing I can do and a thing that I'm good at but it's not what I see when I look in the mirror, you know? Oh, that is, I mean, that is really interesting to me. That's cool. Because, that, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I, it's just funny. I like literally like wake up, eat breakfast, eat lunch. What am I saying? As like thinking I'm an artist. <laughs> like <laughs> I wake up and I'm yes. like, artist. And um, <laughs> so I, that's why I was curious about, about when you study both. Is there, is there a job that incorporates both of those things? You, because you went to you went to an Ivy League school. Was was there any um, pressure saying like you have to combine you know um, fields if you're studying these fields? What is your plan? You know, did mm -hmm. you find any of that pressure? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I feel like uh, specifically at Penn, it was more like do all of the things. Do oh, every single awesome. thing that you're interested in. Yeah, um, which led to like an insane amount of stress because oh. any one thing is enough, you know, to occupy your uh, mental space um, and just time and physical energy. But at least no one was going to stop you, you know, like if you wanted to take on an insane workload and also do like three or four shows in various capacities every year. Great. That's encouraged, you know. Um, So I never felt pressure to pick one or the other, at least from an academic standpoint. Mm -hmm. Um, And spoiler alert, I don't think there's a thing that combines computer science (laughs) and theater seamlessly. Um, I'm sure if I like really wanted to do that, I could figure something out or maybe someone else already has. Yeah. But it's not a it's not like oh I really want to do both you know yeah it's like I can do computer science but I really love theater so that's like how I want to divide my energy oh that's sick and and when you say doing theater you mean acting yes I mean acting and when I uh am not experiencing the pandemic you know (laughs) blanket of sadness um, I have the classic like list of ideas in a notes app for scenes or plays that I want to write. So oh, that's maybe sick. one day yeah. I'll become a multi hyphenate. A multi hyphenate. Oh, I thought you were good. That's I like that as as a noun. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> adjective. So um, Sierra sent me two different papers. Um, the first paper was about um, bus routes in the Philadelphia public school system. Am I correct about that? That is correct. Um, and then the second one is about racial bias in the Compass Predictive Justice Tool. So I wanted to talk about actually both of them. Um, I think I'm going to concentrate a little bit more on Compass, um, but I wanted to talk about both of them just because the ways that you apply engineering in different ways is fascinating to me, and the ways mm-hmm. that these papers are written is also fascinating to me. So um, for the Philadelphia bus paper, right? Um, mm-hmm. Was this a hypothetical situation or were you really proposing a reroute? And when you're proposing a reroute, where does this go to? Oh, actually, first, <laughs> could you talk about <laughs> what is the paper and then and then talk about if it was hypothetical? <laughs> yes, yes, for sure. So this paper is um, the product of a year-long equivalent to a thesis mm-hmm. project. So... Uh, every engineering major has to do a senior design project, which is instead of a 40-page thesis paper, you go and you build something. So what I did with my group of four people, so me and three of my very good friends, um, we were you know, trying to find an idea. We wanted to do something that felt like it was going to have a positive impact on somebody somewhere. And our department head was like, hey, the Philadelphia school district has a decently long list of problems that they can't really solve themselves at the moment. Mm. And um, they brought it to us to say, hey, can your senior design engineering students help us out here? So we took a look at this list and one of them was bus transportation. So basically, Philadelphia has one of the largest public school systems in the country because it's one of the largest cities in the country. Right. And 
they every day struggle to get kids to school on time and that like really saddened us because we were like isn't that literally the first step to getting an education like never mind the quality of what yeah exactly yeah it was like and we can't even do that for kids we can't even get them to their schools whether Mm. they're good schools or not um so in this problem statement they've proposed um using an algorithm to make better bus routes so this way they could get more kids to school on time and so we were like you know what this sounds really cool. Um, sounds like we could actually help some people. And uh, we decided to make that the project that we focused on for a year as the culmination of our studies. Wow. And when did you complete this? So it was, um, our portion was completed in April. And- um, Of this year? We got, yes, of 2020. So I graduated in May and this was completed in April. Holy crow. So you had to go remote in the in the middle, well, toward the end of this thesis. Yes, yeah. And the end is always where the most work Yeah. Happens. Oh my gosh, that must have been awful. Yeah, it was definitely hard. Um, but the the plus side was that since so many other things were just suddenly canceled, we had way more time to spend on this. Oh yeah, I guess and I that's think, true. Yeah. It came out way better because of the pandemic than <laughs> would have otherwise oh did you have like shows that were canceled too yes exactly what shows were you in that were canceled well i was directing we are proud to present by jackie oh my gosh yes elias told me about that oh my gosh yeah that's very cool play yeah yeah so it was like taking up a ton of my time and energy and i was so excited to do it and i obviously still wish that i could have but my spare time and energy that you know would have been devoted to that I put into this project. That that is quite a show. I, I remember reading that in in a playwriting class. I hope you get to direct it one day. Anyway, um, me too. Plug for everyone listening to this. Go look up that play. It's incredible. So it's uh I don't remember the full title, but it's We Are Proud to Present. And who is it written by? For the plug. <laughs> Jackie Sibley's Drury. Okay, I think if you just look up We Are Proud to Present and then that name, then you'll find it. You don't need the full title. Because it is still, yes, it's like eighteen it's words. It's deliciously or long. Because I, I am a sucker for long names. Anyway, so back mm-hmm. to uh, bus routes in Philadelphia. Um, so I, yes. I found the uh, Pennsylvania first choice policy fascinating. Could you describe the first choice policy in your mm. own words? Yes. So um, Pennsylvania is not the only state or jurisdiction to have this, which I also thought was quite interesting and probably just like a symptom of our public school system mm. not being great. Uh, on a national level, but basically Pennsylvania has this uh, law that any student can choose what school they go to within their own school district. So in most, or in my personal experience, it's like you go to the school that is zoned for your mailing address. But um, in Pennsylvania, you could theoretically choose to go anywhere in your own district. Mm. Um, So that's not to say that you can, you'll actually get your first choice because, you know, some schools are more popular than others, but you can always put your name in the running or apply to whatever school. It doesn't matter how close or far you are as long as they're in your district. And then the buses are required to pick those kids up. Yes, Even if it's the farthest school in the district. Yes, like that actually does happen that, you know, kids in South Philly will attend a school 
at the farthest corner of North Philly mm. and they'll get bussed there, which is like even without making other stops, like an hour and a half ride. Are there um, social and economic implications to the first choice policy like like that? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. it's like, yeah, <laughs> yes. right. All right, like cool, let's else. keep going. <laughs> um, yeah, basically the my understanding of this, because I'm not a sociology expert, but sure. did some research for this paper, um, is that, you know, you've got the situation where a kid lives in a low-income neighborhood and their local school is not going to provide the quality of education right. that they want or that their parents want for them. So then the answer is to uh, try and find a better school within the district. And a lot of the times what ends up happening is, especially with magnet schools and private schools, which are also part of the busing system, ah. um, whichever schools advertise themselves the best are the ones that parents learn about and then send their kids to. Because even though there are literally hundreds of schools, in the district, mm-hmm. I think somewhere around like 750, oh 750 my schools. Gosh. Yeah. And that's in right. Philadelphia School District. Right. Oh that's in Philadelphia gosh. and like a few surrounding townships, but like Philadelphia right, County. Right. Um, and so it's not like parents are sitting there and checking off every single school and looking at which one is optimal for their situation. It's just like, oh, I got a mailer for like Bridgetown Academy, uh-huh. great. I'll send my kid there. Looks cool. Oh, oh yeah. So I, so there are a lot of implications to that. And um, due to the first choice policy, the bus routes are can be all over the place. Uh, yes. Which is, I, I thought it was interesting that you listed that there was um, problems with finding enough bus drivers, and there's often subs for bus drivers, so kids will either get to school really late often or not even get to school at all. So um, what, I, what, mm-hmm. I, what I didn't know about engineering, honestly, I, like the word engineering has just been this elusive, like, oh yeah, like STEM. But it's, <laughs> so mm-hmm. when I read this and I was like, oh, this is engineering. It's, it's like a, for me, what, what I interpreted as far as with this paper is it's a combination of creative solutions and math so yes, I was like, when, when y'all y'all's team came up with the um, the single term routing versus mixed term routing, there is a there is a creative aspect to the algorithms that you come up with. Because um, I think as an artist, yes. like math is just a very intimidating thing for me. But I'm like, oh, this is also there's like an art to this. So um, what were the solutions that you guys came up with creatively as a team? Wow. Well, I love the way you framed that because I do think like, (laughs) yeah, nailed it. Um, I do think in general, engineering doesn't get enough credit for being creative. You know, it's Mm. like I think people have this impression that you run through a rule book every time you do an engineering problem. (laughs) Do engineering. Um, (laughs) Um, And like most of the time, it's, it's not quite like that. Um, So to answer your question about how we like, came up with the solution to this problem um a lot of it is how you identify the source of the problem Mm. so like it's easy to look at this and say okay kids in philadelphia are not always getting to school on time that's the problem but then finding the root cause is what informs the solution so we did a whole lot of interviews with the people who like at present moment make every bus route by hand and these people have so much information and they're experts 
on this process and they know that we have some kids with who are special ed and they have individualized education plans ieps who have to take like a bus with a wheelchair lift for example or they can only take vans with limited number of passengers because there has to be a monitor to assist all of the students in the van so there are tons of different um basically like levers that we can't influence like we can't um get rid of kids needing wheelchairs not that we want to you know it's just like (laughs) that's something that we can't affect so that's not right right that's like not how you're gonna get to the solution so after doing a bunch of these interviews we boiled it down to okay there's straight up just not enough bus drivers like the way that things are being done right now um the there are lots of routes not enough bus drivers so then those routes just don't get covered Mm. um and so the school district had said hey we heard that there was this cool thing they did up in boston with some mit researchers called tiering and it worked for them literally saved boston like several million dollars wow um over five years yeah which was very cool so they were like could we do something like that like boston is an urban center Mm -hmm. kind of a similar environment um and we're like sure we'll look into it so we read um the paper written by the mit researchers um who are quite important people in the world of transportation engineering oh yeah (laughs) they are which is nerdy but cool for them um (laughs) so we read that paper and we were like okay these are the similarities that we see between Philly and Boston, but um, because of that first choice rule that you had just mentioned, um, Philly was slightly different in that you couldn't group kids by where they lived and therefore know which school they needed to go to. So it's not as simple as saying, oh, this neighborhood connects to, like neighborhood A connects to neighborhood B because they're kind of close by and the schools are kind of close by and they have bell times that are far enough apart that we could get everyone to school A, use that same bus to get everyone else to school B. Right. Like, it would have been nice if that solution translated (laughs) directly, Yeah. but it didn't. So that was where our creative problem solving came in um, for this specific Philly uh, project. And we did some additional research and we're like, okay, what are some other problems that look kind of similar to this one? Maybe it's not um, busing, but instead, I think it was something like um, shipping, so mm. like shipping goods between different places and how to do that in the best way possible. And so, for our project, um, we combined theory from that paper and the implementation of this bus routing algorithm used in Boston to then create our own version of that solution. Mm. So that involved, like you said, a bunch of math, um, a bunch of graph theory, and then the actual programming to implement those math models on the data that we had. And then from there, we were able to actually make something that worked. And like the optimization that we implemented was like, a huge improvement on what the Boston paper had done, which was really cool. That is so cool. I was just, while you were talking, I was thinking about how, like, I'll write a paper, like, uh, in another episode, I think, is going up 
a, a little bit prior to yours. It's not been released yet. Um, I talk about like my problems with the Motion Picture Association of America and mm. uh, like, you know, the problems in the rating system between sex and violence, right? And yes. all I do is just write the paper and get mad about it and it's a paper. <laughs> Whereas it's, it must feel more empowering or at least just it must feel empowering as an engineer to be able to, to actually do things about these problems. Like you are actually helping people and actually fixing people, whereas I'm just like banging my fist on a table. <laughs> <laughs> that is in some cases true, but and of course I know you're joking, but I think, you know, in general, the enrichment of an artist like yourself informs the things uh, that you do make. Yeah, it, you know? it is true. And I guess you go that's out true. and you change the motion picture association or whatever they're called <laughs> for the better. Yeah. Yeah. I just think algorithms are sick. I like I didn't I it's just like <laughs> Yeah, okay, I agree there. Yeah, cuz so I I I think what's also cool about um your paper which I I had never read an engineering paper before and I <laughs> I've got um on a subset of five schools where algorithm runs in 28 seconds using an i5 processor with 8 gigabits of RAM during 100 iterations of single school routing algorithm. Like, do you have to clarify how long an algorithm takes on a computer when you're writing an engineering paper? Yeah, so, um, <laughs> so <laughs> first, usually a paper like this is just not required. Like for most classes, you'll go, you build a thing, and then oh. how well it works is what you're assessed by. But in this case, because part of what we were being assessed on is whether or not it would actually be possible for the Philadelphia transportation uh -huh. specialists to use this, it's like, okay, well, do you need a supercomputer to run this? And uh, our answer was like, no. And here's exactly how much time it takes to run on a very standard pr processor, like my MacBook Air right here it uses an i5. Um, like that type of information is not just put in because numbers and speed are like arbitrarily interesting, but rather like <laughs> this is how we can prove it will be useful for the people we intend to use it. Right, right. And I, it's just funny that I don't think about those sorts of things. Like, I'm just like, yeah, computers yeah. run numbers. But it's like, it is actually important to note, like, do they have a supercomputer? Will they need a supercomputer? Mm -hmm. um, also, like, I also, as, as we're headed toward the end of this paper, because I, I do want to hit the Compass uh, predictive justice tool as well, because I find that totally fascinating as well. Um, mm -hmm. in, in your first paper, as we're talking about how engineering papers are formatted, there was B, ISD contribution. We are not an ISD team. I don't know what that means, but it's hilarious to me. <laughs> like, it, yes. What is, what's an ISD? What is that? Yeah, yeah. So, like, ISD means integrated <laughs> senior design. Uh, integrated just meaning multiple majors. Mm. So, oh. everyone on my team had the same major, but sometimes you'll get mechanical engineering students working with computer science engineering computer science students working with electrical engineering students. So then it's like, okay, it, it matters because that just changes how you're assessed. Oh, okay. That, it's just, it was just, I didn't know what it meant. And so it was even funnier to <laughs> yeah. me. ISD contribution. Yeah, we are fair. not an ISD team. Anyway. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Okay. So that was, I, I'm, I'm really happy to have learned and read your paper and ha have heard you speak about the Philadelphia bus system and how it is 
um, you got to improve it and how empowering that was. And that's that's sick. Um, and uh, now I would Thank love you. to talk about another paper that you wrote, which I also found very interesting. Um, the second paper was called How Age Exacerbates Racial Bias in the Compass Predictive Justice Tool. Could you describe Compass? Yes. Uh, so Compass is something that is used, it's a piece of software that's used relatively uh, widely across the U.S. Mm -hmm. And its function is to help judges decide sentences for mm -hmm. uh, people who have just been convicted um, of crimes. And the way they do this is by it basically assigning somebody a risk score and the risk in question is like how great of a risk are they to society um so judges will like literally go into compass this uh, app and use it to decide like three to seven or seven to ten etc years in prison oh my gosh so it's an extremely powerful tool extremely yes mm-hmm um, and you talk a lot in your paper about ProPublica. Um, what is ProPublica? Yeah, ProPublica is a very cool organization, uh, nonprofit, I believe. And they basically investigate uh, things like this Compass software for fairness and um, basically with the interests of citizens in mind. Mm. Like, let's go investigate things that are opaque. And I'm fairly certain it's not just technology that they will investigate, but they'll go and investigate powerful individuals as well. Um, oh, wow. And just do, yeah, um, I believe that's correct. And just do their own research and come to their own conclusions because they're like, we don't trust you to represent yourselves accurately like mm. this Compass tool. Oh, wow. Okay, so um, I looked up a little bit about Compass. Um, um, would you mind making sure that you're still recording? Sometimes I just get nervous. Yes. <laughs> okay, great. It's there. We're good. I know you can't see that, but yeah. That's why I paused for a second, just so that John could cut it out. Thanks, John. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, now that pause is over. So uh, COMPASS is Correctional Offender Management Profiling for Alternative Sanctions. That's what it stands for. It's C-O-M-P-A-S if you want to do your own research. There's only one S. Um, it was developed and owned by North Point, which is now Equivant. So mm -hmm. um, it's for me, I had no idea that we used algorithms in the court to, to try mm. to find these things rather than just stories. When I think about a court, yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't think about algorithms. I think about lawyers debating. And, and I mean, I also don't know anything about law. I'm learning a lot. Um, <laughs> I, so when I looked up Compass, because I was like, what the hell is this? I had no idea. What? Uh, the mm -hmm. Wisconsin Supreme Court in 2016 ruled that Compass risk scores can be considered by judges during sentencing, but there must be warnings given to the scores to represent the tool's limitations and cautions. So Wisconsin was like, yeah, you can use it, but you have to say that it doesn't work all the time. I'm like, then why use yeah. it? <laughs> what? Um, I, <laughs> I read that one of the critiques of, of these sort of uh, softwares is that the algorithms are like, like secretive, I guess, and they yeah. can't be examined by the public and affected parties, which like could be seen as a violation of due process. Mm -hmm. And like more simple algorithms like linear regression have been shown to perform the predictions like just as well, um, or like yeah. nearly as well. 
So it's like, why use it? Um, and <laughs> like <laughs> machine learning based algorithms are data dependent. And if the data is biased, the software will yield biased results. Um, yes. So what were the, some of the things that you found about this software? Yeah, or so um, yes. So one of the things that um, the, so the premise of this paper was like, hey, ProPublica has done their research and mm -hmm. has shown that um, if you put a white person into the system with the exact same criminal record, exact same birthday, exact same hometown, like identical profile as a black person, then um, with the only difference being their race, the black person will get a higher and therefore worse score than the white person. So mm -hmm. um, our professor who studies algorithmic fairness um, as his specialty. Um, he was like, now that you know this, go find something else about the way the compass algorithm performs. Like, um, race is only one dimension of a bias. And so, um, you can either pick an entirely different dimension such as gender, or you can combine them and see, okay, we know that like, there's a racial bias, but is it worse if you're like a white woman versus a black woman? Um, something right. to that effect. And so uh, the our investigation was around age because we knew that there, or we had done research to show that historically speaking, most crime is committed before age 25 or most offenders are younger than 25 is probably mm -hmm. a better way to say that. Um, so we were curious if the compass algorithm um, knowing that most of its data would be from people who are um, younger than 25, if there was a bias against those younger individuals. And from a sociological standpoint, we were interested to know because if you get a criminal record at 21, 22, or you're locked away for a long time at that age, then that uh, sets you off on a really bad path for yeah. the rest of your life. Um, and so we were saying, all right, if we know that this bias affects younger people, then that gives us um, just one more component to explain um, the wealth gap between white and black individuals, because having a criminal record prevents you from getting a job, prevents you from um, earning wealth that you then pass on to your family, things like that. Um, so what we did was we used the model that Compass had created, and we ran comparisons on the scores that it produced for uh, young white males, young black males, and then middle-aged white and black males, and then old white and black males. Um, and we chose males because there was far more data um, publicly available on male criminal male criminal records than female just mm. because men commit most of the crime in this country um so that was our investigation and um i forget did you ask what we found or just like what we were trying to figure out i don't remember what i asked <laughs> okay <laughs> i was just like uh, tell me about the paper <laughs> yeah okay <laughs> which you're doing a great job doing so i was like yeah, yeah, keep going hell yeah <laughs> Um, so I, I found one of the things that I found very interesting is that you didn't find necessarily that um, the bias was, was greater for young people. You found it um, 
for uh, for older people. How does that mm -hmm. feel, and what happens when when you have the hypothesis and it is like I don't know if is the right term to say that it was an incorrect hypothesis or that it was yes. There's there's oh okay. So what what does it mm -hmm. one feel like as a person when that happens <laughs> and you discover as a team like oh shit what we thought was wrong, and what do you do then? Yeah, I think um, one of the cool things about being wrong is that it keeps you on your toes. Like um, <laughs> you, then you you pause the next time. You're like, oh, I know, I know the answer. Um, oh, that's Because it just it just makes you think deeper. Like, okay, uh, why? What might we have missed when we were creating this hypothesis? Mm. Um, and on the technical front, it's like because we had, or because Compass has so much data on people younger than 25 because they commit most of the crimes, there is a higher probability that that data will be diverse. So that there will be more information available about people in those parties. And mm. uh, because there's more information available, the algorithm will not pick up on as much inherent bias, uh, which is just like, a rule of how machine learning uh, algorithms work. Like the more information you have, um, the better your prediction will be. Mm -hmm. So um, that was something that made sense from the technical standpoint. Um, and then it also just like emphasized how these algorithms might not make logical sense. Like, the patterns that they detect might be very different from how a human brain processes information, you know? Um, hmm. Which is, like, you see that so often in racist algorithms. Like, um, one of my favorite examples is the racist hand soap dispenser. What? Oh, yeah. oh is it a sensor thing? Yes, it's a sensor thing. <gasps> um, where basically, like, <laughs> uh, I want to say it was several years ago. Um, a video went viral of a black man trying to use a hand soap dispenser, like a, an automatic one, and it just wouldn't dispense soap. What? And then he put, what? yeah, and then he put a white paper towel under it, and then it dispensed soap. <gasps> no. Yeah, it's sad, <laughs> right? So that just proves that the sensor is is looking for like the color white. Or, exactly. Like, oh my yes. god. Yeah, so it didn't actually learn what a hand looks like. It learned <laughs> what a white hand looks like. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, the so, reason I'm laughing is because it's like, Jesus. Exactly. Like, I don't, it's, not, it's not necessarily funny. It's just like, oh, my God. It's tragic, yeah. And it's yeah. like, that's why, I mean, going back to the women in STEM thing, it's like, that's why sure. it, it is so goddamn important to have diverse voices in the room because if there had been a black engineer on that team, then they would have probably tested the sensor on that person's hand. And uh, instead, what probably happened was that it was like a room full of white people developing the sensor when it worked for every single one of them, or right. however many test subjects they got. They were like, great, our sensor works. Um, so You would hope that the team would be like, oh, we have to think about other people you would hope people in this room but they don't and mm -hmm. so i think that that is interesting of, of why we have to have teams that are more diverse that that's a really great way to explain that because sometimes it's like hard to explain i guess like 
why like people actually do need more diverse teams because they don't think about other people Mm -hmm. and it's not because they're malicious it's just because it's like how can you predict the existence of a problem that you don't experience it's quite hard that is an extremely articulate and beautiful way to say that yeah wow (laughs) you're welcome (laughs) (laughs) um so like when a hypothesis is incorrect it keeps you on your toes and i think that that's that's really sick um sick in the in the awesome way (laughs) that is sick um okay let's see where i was going next sorry john you're gonna have to cut this um oh okay sure could you explain to me the false positive and how drastic a one point difference is so a certain number warrants investigation yes yeah so um in any kind of predictive model so even like you know a coronavirus test um Uh or in a machine learning algorithm that's trying to identify like you know a face versus not a face um a false positive would be when the algorithm says yes i think this is a face or the test says yes i think this person has covid19 um but they are incorrect hence a false positive um so Hmm. uh there are situations with the compass algorithm where uh, we would call a false positive being falsely identifying someone as high risk. So um, the algorithm thinks that based on this person's profile, they're a menace to society. Um, So the way that these scores are often used is that they're broken down into categories. So something like one to three is low risk four to six is medium risk so someone that you might um want to give like a lenient sentence to but still incarcerate them and then something like seven to ten is high risk this person is likely to commit this crime again so they need to be locked up longer um which unfortunately is how our justice system works i don't think that's very effective but it is what it is (laughs) um so the problem with compass is that it is not perfect and oftentimes uh not oftentimes like the data shows that black people um get false positives more often with this Mm. software so black people more often than white people are incorrectly identified as being high risk so they end up getting stronger sentences because a human judge looks at that score decides that Compass is trustworthy and then says, I need to lock this person up for a longer period of time because Compass said they're dangerous. I wonder why, do you know why people started using Compass instead of Yeah, it's not. Because <laughs> just, I, I don't know. Instead it of just doing sounds... their job? Instead of judging? Like, <laughs> it, I just think it sounds like such bullshit. Yes, yeah, I mean... I think what's what's really interesting about this to me is that I agree with you that the outcome is bullshit, but the thought process for how they got there is not crazy. Basically, okay. they said, like, humans have our own bias, which is true. We see that time and time again. Okay, so sure. they were like, we have so much data, it's not even funny, about who has committed <laughs> crimes, right? Who has committed crimes, how they grew up, and whether or not they committed crimes again. Right? Um, right. So 
we have this data that we can learn from. And if we get an objective algorithm that uses this data to learn patterns, then we can benefit from the knowledge that this algorithm has extracted from our data and uh-huh. use it to make our own decisions better. Because Okay, okay. Like like people tried their best is what I'm saying, because at the end of the day there is still a judge that decides the sentence. Right. Compass is a component of that decision, but it is not a good component of the decision. So it's almost the purpose is to reduce bias because we all have bias but it doesn't do that it makes it worse yes it does yeah and I think it's interesting that it has a good intention I guess yeah uh, yeah and 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 it sucks right it sucks that someone was like we can do this better and then they just repeated all the mistakes that we've been making this time in an app um but it's not hopeless like okay. these algorithms don't <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah no um i'm here to save the day but um <laughs> they're these algorithms can be forced to become fair by the person who creates them ah. so basically it's like technically speaking there are a few ways you can do it but you can manually change the algorithm so that it doesn't discriminate oh. based on race or it doesn't discriminate based on gender and there are tons of ways you can do that without sacrificing that much of the uh effectiveness of the algorithm and didn't you do that in the paper you guys tried to we did work on the and and you and you made it better yes mm-hmm. we did so what what happens then? So you write these papers and stuff, and are people doing this a lot for Compass, and they're trying to change it? Like, so, so yours yours was a paper where you literally like trying to change it, like in a literal sense, or was this like a mm. class project sort of sense? Yeah, this was a class project. Like, hey, we know that this real world system is broken in our right. little sandbox. Can we make it better? Mm-hmm. Um, but there are tons of actual researchers out there who have dedicated their lives to trying to make these algorithms better and then Mm -hmm. trying to get the companies that produce software using these algorithms to make changes um okay like there's some really cool books i recommend weapons of math destruction (gasps) oh i know what a title title i love that (laughs) (laughs) oh and somebody else like i love that Well, I'm glad that that means it's working for someone. Um, <laughs> Not me, though. Right? I'm too cool. But, yeah. So there are people who are trying to make these things better, and there are so many researchers, right. and, like, a lot of them are women, which is very cool. Um, so it's not hopeless, but it is so prevalent still. Were there... So you, you have to work on these projects in a group. Mm-hmm. Um, that, for me, was, like... Wow, I, I'm not good in groups at all. Um, but that just made me like, wow, all of these, like when you're an engineering student, like you have to work in groups. That's so fascinating. You have to write papers in groups. Were you the only person in your group or were there other uh, people in your group that were black? Uh, I was the only person in my group who was black. Um, there was one white guy, one half white, half Indian guy, and one Indian mm-hmm. girl, or Indian American, sorry. Hmm. 
So how did it feel? Did it feel any different while you were studying this paper? Um, I would say that within my group, because they were all friends of mine, I felt oh, that's like nice. comfortable and yeah. that did not feel different, but the room itself felt uncomfortable, not because... The classroom as a whole. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the professor, was who was a white guy, um, did a great job of speaking in a respectful uh, way that didn't shy away from the fact that, like, hey, what we're looking at is racism codified in code. Um, mm. So it was not due to him at all. I think he actually did an excellent job of um, creating the classroom space. But... Um, I definitely felt like certain students' answers to questions and whatnot were at times, like, very uncomfortable to hear. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. So, so it, it, it made you feel uncomfortable? Yeah. Yeah. So, in the classroom, were, were how many, were, were you one of the very few black The only the black girl. In the, in the classroom? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And yeah. the only black person, period. Wow. Yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> I don't even know what to say about that. That's, that's so interesting because uh, when, when we're looking at this, I, I like that you go into, in the paper, why this matters, you know? Mm-hmm. You could, I guess you could take a totally mathematical approach and almost like a sterile approach to this and just be like, well, the math is wrong. Well, yeah. you know, there, which, which there's, that's totally valid, saying mm-hmm. like the math here is wrong and that's why that matters. But you go on to say the black unemployment rate um, is almost twice as high as the white unemployment rate. It's uh, preventing black people from living a free and successful life. Um, and their their ability to earn steady income is jeopardized. You go into the reasons why there's, and so does that happen a lot in engineering where you have to justify why this, why this math matters? And does that come into personal identity often? That's um, a really cool question. Um, Thank you. I feel nice. You're doing a great job, Jess. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like when it comes to my own curiosities and spaces like this class, um, and there are lots of spaces to do this um, where you're specifically looking at how tech is used. Um, and what that impact that it has is on race, on gender, et cetera. Kind of like reading literature through like X type of lens. It's like looking oh, at tech sure, that sure. way as well. Um, so I do that a lot out of my own curiosity and there are like excellent TED Talks, excellent books out there. But when it comes to work, like my job as a software engineer, um, a lot of what I do is not about that but a lot of what my company focuses on is as one of our like ethical pillars is that so Mm -hmm. i think in the corporate tech world like everybody knows it's out there it's just a matter from company to company from team to team within those companies how much is it relevant to what you're building and then Mm. how much do you personally care because it could as be a very relevant. Or as an individual, both. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Sure. So I guess that that's why it really matters to have people of color and uh, women in STEM. Well, just more more diverse people in STEM. 
Yes, exactly. Yeah, because there might be situations, there are situations at present where people should care, but they don't. And there are situations where there's like one person who really cares, but (laughs) they get drowned out, you know? So um, strength in numbers. And it's not just about being a certain identity and that's why you would care, Mm -hmm. but it's like getting everybody to care, you know? Um, And then just recognizing that like, it's awesome that everybody cares, but you still need diversity because you can care and not know what the other perspective is that you're missing. Right. And I mean, there, there's, there's a lot of room for like, um, for uh, personal responsibility and education, like reading as much mm-hmm. as you can. That, you know, there was, a, there was a big push in that for that in June and, and the summer as well, like just reading as much as you can to try to understand, try to learn. Um, because it's hard putting pressure on the people around you to educate you, you know, to make your yes. friends educate you. That's like, not necessarily their responsibility. Right. So there, there is, there is the personal responsibility of just trying to educate yourself and and trying to make sure that you care and recognize your own biases. Um, but yeah, I think I think having the people that it affects there is just as important so that they they can um, advocate for themselves too. Mm-hmm. Um, does exactly. does that make you feel any pressure, like to because you are somebody in STEM? Like, does that make you feel does, does that make you feel like excited to be there to represent or or does it make you feel pressure or both? I think it's nine times out of ten more excitement than it is pressure. Oh, that's but, great. Oh, uh, that's great. Yes, which is something I'm very thankful for. Yeah. Um, and I think like has a lot to do with the uh, company culture. Um, I work for a company called Palantir and mm-hmm. we like build data management software for um government organizations for corporations um things like that so um the company itself is on the younger side like the people working there and so i don't feel like um i have to represent or like anyone's looking at me consciously and thinking okay whatever sierra says is like what the black community would think you know (laughs) Um, that's good which thank god for that (laughs) yeah right um but I do kind of like um, my experience in my classrooms, like whether somebody is being explicit about it or not, I'm still hyper aware that I am the only one. And mm. um, sometimes it can be frustrating when I'm like, ooh, that wasn't cool mm. um, to feel like I don't have as much space to speak out against it because it is uh, inherently personal because no one else can relate. So even if it's not like, um, a if someone says something racist, right? Right. Like it becomes personal because I'm the only person of color in the room. Not it's suddenly like, on your shoulders. Yes, exactly. Even though anyone else could recognize that that's not cool, it's not like you have to be a person of color to identify racism. It's like that's I'm the only person in the room that it directly affects in that like harmful, hurtful, negative way. So yeah, um, that is something unavoidable for me like it's a feeling that I have not um been able to get rid of even when it's not overt but you know Mm. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing it's just the reality of being the only one yeah yeah I think that's an experience that uh, that a lot no 
not I wouldn't say no because you know white people also have uh, like you can be disabled and white but I just mean like the, that mm -hmm. that is an experience that a lot of white people have not experienced and I think that's important to hear about and talk about and so I thank you for sharing that um, yeah because I certainly was like oh yeah that's that's not something I've experienced damn well, thank you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I don't really, yeah. is, is there anything else um, about these papers or about engineering or just about yourself or anything else that you'd like to share for the pod, for my, for my listeners? Yes, I think uh, in general, it's really powerful as a consumer of these technologies to know even at a high level how they work. Like mm. to know why Instagram shows you specific ads and to know like, you know, you discovered with Research Encompass that, you know, predictive software is used to help judges sentence people to prison, you know, mm -hmm. like, these are things that I think only computer science people tend to learn about, because it's viewed as something that has such a high barrier to entrance. But I don't think that's actually true. Like, yes, not everyone can go program these machine learning algorithms until they take the classes to learn the skills but like someone who uses twitter can figure out why twitter works the way it does and i think mm. um it's really empowering to know those things because then you can recognize when you're being manipulated or you can become suspicious at the appropriate time like if you hear mm. predictive software a little red flag should probably go up or like mm. okay but how was it made like what is it predicting so i urge people to look into that because i think it's fascinating but also it just gives you more power as a user to uh determine like what you see what you're influenced by those kinds of things that's totally fascinating and it, i i'm glad you bring that up too because it's like you know people listening might say like wow compass sounds awful it doesn't affect me directly but that sounds awful um mm -hmm. but then you know, then they open up Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> they exactly. Open up Instagram. Like right after the podcast is over. Right, right. Wake up, sheeple. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's great. Um, just also, just because you brought it up a few times, is that something that you're you're very interested in and about predictive software and social media specifically? Yes, absolutely. I think it's fascinating. I think the Cambridge Analytica um, mm. case study is also fascinating, and it's like for sure that shit is still happening right now it's yeah. just not visible so i think it's it's good to be suspicious i like that it's good to be suspicious that's a great uh call to action for for the end of our episode um so thank you so much sierra it's been absolutely delightful chatting with you today on this lovely tuesday in my mom's closet um, <laughs> i hope you have a great rest of your week Thank you. You too, Jess. This was so much fun. This podcast is produced by Hickory Playground, founded by Dylan Tashjian, Robert Fuller, and Jordan Maycant. Jordan is also our audio editor. Compositions are by Lucky Sarudi. Logos designed by Morgan Honeycutt. My assistant in research is John Morgan Stern, and our digital marketing specialist is Simone Elhart. Thank you so much for listening.